My name is Robbie, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Faith. And uh, periodically throughout this series, if, uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, uh, you know that this year we're going through the book of Acts, and we're walking through the entire book. It's going to take us most of the year, but periodically throughout this series, we're going to be taking little breaks to take a look at some of the letters that were written by the people that we're reading about in Acts. Okay, so, uh, for example, when we read about Paul and, and ministering to the church in Ephesus, we'll take a little break, and the next week we'll take a look at the letter of Ephesians, which is written to the people of Ephesus. So uh, part of that is we, we want to remind one another that most of these letters in the New Testament that we call the New, that we've gathered together and we call the New Testament of the Bible were written during the ministry that is described in the book of Acts. Not all of them, but most of them happened during that time. And so we want to take uh, some time every now and again to just remind us of that and anchor, anchor these letters that we read in moments in history so that we see these are, these are actual letters written to real people who are experiencing real life and then kind of take a step back and just marvel and rejoice at the weird miracle that is them still being so relevant to us today. So we're going to walk through uh, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about some of the ministry and some of the sermons of Peter, the apostle of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to read one of his letters together. And I'm going to pray for us before we get going. Father, I am grateful that we can gather together in your name. I thank you for brothers and sisters to walk alongside as we grow in our understanding of who you are and who we get to be because of you. Thank you for those who are here this morning who, uh, who do not yet know and understand how extraordinary you are, how dearly and deeply loved they are by you, and what it means to be your daughter and your son. And I pray that for all of us, Spirit, you would be an active participant in this morning, that you would stir in us and help us to understand what we can't understand apart from you. And we would know, Father, that you are good. And Jesus, you are king. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. In, in, in whose name we gather this morning. Amen. Amen. So, there's going to be four primary things we're going to look at here as we walk through the book of Second Peter. Okay, we're going to see a divine gift, a divine pursuit, a divine teaching, and a divine plan. And yes, with very little effort, I could have made all of those P's, but I just could not bring myself to do it. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. Uh, so it's intentionally not an alliteration. Um, but divine gift, divine pursuit, a divine teaching, and a divine plan. And we're going to see each of those as we walk through this book together. Um, it is a letter. It is uh, part of a group of letters in the New Testament that we call the general epistles. And, and that's because these letters were not written to a specific person or a specific church, but were written to the church generally for all believers at the time to understand. So, um, so this one is called Peter, not because it was written to Peter, but because it was written by Peter. 
And he's writing to the church at large. And so his introduction right there out of the gate, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. So right out of the gate, an apostle, one of the twelve chosen by Jesus, says to everyone else, to those of you who have obtained this faith in equal standing with ours. How? By the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So his point is not, you have worked so hard that you've managed to work your way all the way up to our level. No, no, no. He's saying our our salvation is all of equal standing because it had nothing to do with us. All of us are equally dependent on God and Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. And so if we are in, we are all in at the exact same equal standing because we are here by the same qualification. Life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So that is, that sentence, that phrase, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, is a theme throughout this letter. He keeps pointing back to it. It's important to know because later when he talks about gaining knowledge, it's helpful to know the context of what he means. This is the knowledge that he's going to be talking about later, not just gaining information or intelligence, but the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God. So in Chapter 1 now, right out of the gate, he gives us this, uh, uh, reminds us of this divine gift that we have received in and through the gospel. So he says here, his divine power, right, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, he has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And I've referenced this, voice, or this verse rather before, and if you've heard that before, you may remember I pointed out, uh, I thought, a really helpful detail, that, that, that word there, all things. In the Greek, what that means is all things. There's nothing mysterious going on here. What he means by this is everything. Everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us by divine power. So this is this divine gift that we have been given. All things that pertain to life and godliness. If you belong to Jesus, then he has already accomplished everything that is required to, first of all, repair our shattered relationship with God, and as a result, the Father has adopted us into his family and into his kingdom, and then given us an identity as daughter and son. And also, as if that wasn't enough, the Spirit then dwells with us and within us to teach us and to lead us and to empower us to do all that he has accomplished. Which means that if you belong to Jesus, then the very good news is that there is 
absolutely nothing that can prevent you from walking in godliness and the abundant life that he has promised. Nothing. There is nothing that you lack, the absence of which would prevent you from loving submission to God and to Jesus and to accomplish all that he has in store for you. So all of the things that we think are holding us back, all the things that we believe are preventing us from walking in the fullness of what God might have for us, if only we could be free of these things. I'm not educated enough. I'm not experienced enough. I haven't been following Jesus long enough. I don't have the right role or title or position. Or I, 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 if I only hadn't made these mistakes or, or if I wasn't haunted by this particular temptation, Peter's going to tell you, nope, nope. Nope, 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 and nope. None of those things are preventing you from all that God has for you. None of those things can prevent the Holy Spirit of the living God of the universe working within you and empowering you to walk in godliness and abundant life. Nothing. Now, the bad news is if you belong to Jesus, then there is absolutely nothing that is preventing you from walking in godliness and abundant life. Which means I also don't have my excuses. So for those of us who are discouraged and trying so hard and think, ah, but if only this, Peter says, no, 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 no you have everything that you need. And for those of us who are like, well, I mean, I totally would, but I can't because of this stuff. Peter's going, oh, no, no. You have everything that you need. I cannot blame my circumstances. I cannot blame God for any lack of provision on God's part for my lack of obedience. I have all that is required. The problem is not that he has never removed that temptation or not changed that circumstance. We need to be honest with ourselves that truly it sounds pretty silly when we say out loud, when we express out loud some of our excuses and say in order to, in order to be able to love God and obey Him and to love others and serve them, I need the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, the same spirit that spoke the universe into existence and currently is holding together every atom by his power and resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead and a different job. Or and a new car. Or and for him to just take away or change fill in the blank with whatever. I, it's just not the case. By all means, if you get a better job offer, you can afford a better vehicle. Take it. That's great. That's, not, that's fine. We just need to stop blaming a busted up ride or a job or a spouse or a temptation or any other circumstance for our lack of obedience because those are not the things that are keeping us from walking in the fullness that God has to offer. The problem is never out there. The problem is always in here. Always. 
Because the reality is those circumstances are typically the very thing that God is using to grow our dependence on Him, our delight in Him, our trust in Him, to display His extraordinary goodness and grace and power, not only to us, but to the lost world around Him that needs Him through our response to those circumstances. Those contexts are the gift, oftentimes, that He is giving us to see Him do what only He can do and what we can only do through Him. So how do, we, how do we walk in that? How do we cooperate with the Spirit in that? Well, Peter is a practical guy, so he gives us a rather helpful bullet point list. For some of us, that gives great delight. A list of how, what to do, what to pursue in order to cooperate with the Spirit and to benefit from this partnership with him. And in verse 4, this unbelievably extraordinary promise, he says, by which he has granted to us his very precious, his, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become what partakers of the divine nature. We don't need a sermon, we need a series to unpack what all that means. So how do we do that? Well, to this then we need to add the divine, the, the divine pursuit. I've been given this divine gift and then a divine pursuit. As he says, for this very reason, make every effort. So we're going to call that the divine pursuit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, enabling and empowering us to pursue these things. He says, we supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It must and always begin with faith. That's where it starts. Trusting in that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has accomplished what he declared he has accomplished, but, but much more than that, faith is the means by which we connect with and cooperate with the spiritual realities that constantly surround us. Right? When we reduce faith to simply just agreeing with certain principles or certain facts, we diminish God and we ultimately cripple ourselves because we misunderstand the fact that faith is the very means by which we are gaining access to these spiritual realities. So it always begins there. But then he adds to that. From there, we relentlessly and joyfully pursue these things, knowing that we never arrive on this side of eternity we just get to continue on the adventure of growing and growing and growing and growing in our pursuit of these things. And he says, first one is virtue, which is pointing less at good deeds and more at the uncommonly praiseworthy character that produces them. So when he's talking about virtue, he's not talking about doing good stuff. He's talking about cultivating 
your heart, your desires, and your mind in such a way that you become the kind of person that desires the right thing and chooses the right thing and walks in the right thing. And to this virtue, we add knowledge. He's already established what kind of knowledge he means in this. Knowledge of the Father and of Jesus. And to knowledge, self-control. We all know what that means. We just don't love it. Right? Because it takes a lot of work. Self-control. We had steadfastness particularly when under trial and in difficulty, as Peter writes quite a bit about in his first letter. Steadfastness with godliness, that we would desire to be like Jesus, not just his ends, but also his means. Godliness, we had brotherly affection, a deep sense of community, and mutual responsibility, which Jay talked about a couple weeks ago. Mutual responsibility, that we would actually learn to like one another. And as we learn to like one another, we would learn to love one another. Peter lays these out, not as helpful, you should maybe consider doing these. Saying, no, no, because God has made you his own, pursue these things. Make every effort to add these things to your life and to your faith. And he warns, because these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So a lack of these things lead us to be ineffective and unfruitful. And again, do we, see, do we see he did it again here? He snuck it up on us again. In what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're not pursuing these things, we will never know Jesus the way he is making himself available for us to know him. It'll become about an intellectual pursuit or an ethical war or self-righteous religion and not about growing in knowing our Jesus and knowing that we are known by Him. Even the stuff we want most to hide and yet still dearly and deeply loved by Him. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So the issue is not just unfruitfulness and ineffectiveness. The problem is we have forgotten the gospel. When we are not making every effort to pursue these things, it's because we have forgotten the gospel. And rather than living with a sense of gospel intentionality, we're just floating along with gospel amnesia. It's just an assumed or a forgotten gospel, not understanding what it means, what Jesus has actually accomplished, and who we get to be because of him.
And we know this, Peter will go on to describe, because of the divine teaching that he's received. Before he goes on to that, uh, just to quickly point out here, in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Always remind you of these qualities over and over again. I will not stop reminding you. We must not stop reminding one another because it's so easy to forget that amnesia sneaks up on us without our knowing as we simply get distracted by the things that are right in front of our face. And so we remind one another, are you making every effort today? Peter says, I will not stop reminding you of this thing. Because if we're not, then we cannot expect to be fruitful or effective. So in verse 16 then, scroll down or turn the page to verse 16, Peter lays out what in some sense could be kind of a thesis for this letter here. Because the reason he's even talking about what he's just talked about in chapter 1 is because of what he begins to talk about now in chapter 2. And you've got to remember, there, he didn't write, and now beginning chapter 2. We added those like 1,500 years later. Okay? So he's just writing a letter. So to him, this is one continuous thought. It's not divided up into verses and chapters. Um, so he continues his thought. The reason he starts his letter with this is because he is concerned about these people that he loves. And so he's laying out his argument for the divine teaching. Which he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were there with him on the holy mountain. So if you're familiar with the Gospels, with the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell the story of Jesus, that describe his life and ministry, you might remember something that in the church we refer to as the transfiguration. It's this moment when Jesus is on this mountain and he brings Peter and James and John with him. And as he's there, all of a sudden, he just starts like glowing. I... I, I, it's this otherworldly, all of a sudden, eternity starts like leaking out of him. Like all his divine power that he's been holding back, he kind of like lets loose just a little bit. And in this moment, as they don't even know what to do, and they're just, they're, they're wondering what's happening, and all of a sudden like, like Moses and Elijah show up and start talking to him and they're wondering what on earth is going on. They hear the father declare over the son, this is my boy. And so what Peter is saying is, what do you think we came up with this on our own? You think someone like, like we read a pamphlet that somebody was handing out over there outside of the Agora and we were like, this sounds interesting. Like, no, we saw 
eternity exploding out of him as a voice from heaven said, this is my divine son. Peter goes, that's what we're trying to explain to you guys. He says, and what's even more extraordinary than that, like for me, I would feel like that's what, you know, you lead out with that one. That's the big one. That's, that's your, your trump card right there. Divine explosion, voice of God, right? But Peter says, we ourselves heard this voice, and, but in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, yeah, that transfiguration thing, that was awesome. You know what's even more amazing? Scripture. That we get to hold God's Word in our hand and watch it just play out in front of us. And that all these things that were said about Jesus, we saw played out and confirmed over and over and over and over again. So he's laying out his credentials. Right? We didn't come up with this stuff. God himself, in Jesus, gave this to us, which was affirmed in this book that you hold in your hand right here. And then in chapter 2, what he begins to do is warn them, saying, but you're going to hear from other voices. There are those who would seek to distort or ignore Jesus or Scripture. It says, but false prophets rose up among the people, talking about what they read in the Scripture in the Old Testament. And he says, it's going to happen again. There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So what's, I think, important for us to note here is he's not warning them about what's going to happen in culture out there. He's warning them about what is going to happen in here. Within the church, within the church at large, right? Not just in this room. Certainly we need to be cautious of it with one another. Gently correct and encourage one another. Absolutely, that's what discipleship is. But also those voices from the church outside. It is not culture we fear. It is, it is those from within the church who would distort Scripture and without our even realizing it, direct us away from Jesus, away from His means, away from His ends, or worse, trying to accomplish His ends by means that are not His. He has some pretty strong words about these people. He says they, they teach with boldness, but that they teach lies, that they reject authority and try to establish themselves as their own authority. In verse 14 here, we see they entice unsteady souls. 
They are, however, waterless springs. They provide no refreshment, no help. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. Peter goes on and in fairly graphic detail, and you can hear some of the frustration in his voice as he sees people that he loves dearly being misled, being deceived by people who are claiming to be of them and are leading them away from Jesus. You hear hints of his frustration, his anger in in that as he declares that God is just and they will be punished for deceiving God's people and for deceiving and, and, and misleading those who are trying to find God and they detour them away from him. It is the warning for us to be on guard for voices within the broader church that would use scripture in a manner that draws God's people away from Jesus and away from his way. A warning to not be so foolish as to only ever listen to voices that you agree with. Church, we know that Scripture tells us that it is the false teachers that tell you what you want to hear. If all you ever listen to are voices that agree with you, it is a dangerous path to find yourself on because you won't even realize it as they are leading you further and further from Christ himself because you agreed with everything they said. In 2 Timothy, Paul warns us. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. If we can't hear that and acknowledge that is the season that we live in right now, then we aren't listening. Because what do we do? We search for who are the voices that I agree with, who are the voices that affirm my positions, that affirm my doctrine. And I surround myself with teachers, with podcasts, with YouTube videos of all the people who just echo what I believe to be true, who are willing to scratch my itchy ears. And as a result, never stretch me or correct me or reshape me by biblical truth, which is going to happen because unless my argument is that I am doctrinally omniscient then I'm wrong about some stuff. And I need correction. I need to hear from voices that disagree with me so that I can hear what they're saying and why they're saying it and how they're finding that in Scripture so that I can receive the gift of correction. The gift of realizing, I think I was wrong about that thing. Because God in His grace is wanting to teach me and lead me in that and correct me where my lack of omniscience is going to always lead me. Church, beware. Beware not just of those voices, but beware of our own tendency 
to actually prefer those voices because they scratch us where we itch instead of pushing against us where we are moving in the wrong direction. We will continue this pursuit as we wait for the other side of eternity, the fulfillment of all things. When Christ returns to rule all in loving and a joyful, eternal kingdom. And in the meantime, we trust in His divine plan, which Peter addresses in the third chapter. He begins, now this is the second letter that I am writing to you, my beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He wanted to, wanting to remind you, this is what Scripture has always said. Also, this is what Jesus said. Also, this is what the apostles said about what Jesus said. Why? Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So scoffing scoffers will scoff. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when when people say, I thought Jesus was coming back. Guess not. I've been saying it for like two millennia. Doesn't seem like that's happening. Going to be waiting for a while. And Peter's response is, you're overlooking a few important details. What you view as either God's non-existence or his negligence is the exact opposite of both of those. Says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. You're saying, oh, a thousand years have gone by? Is, I'm sorry, are you, are you saying that's a long time for the infinite, eternal God? No, no, okay. No. It's a, that's a blip on the eternal radar. And so why, from our perspective, is it taking so long? Because our God is that patient. Not negligent, but patient. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for that person that you love. He's even waiting for that person that you hate, knowing that even they are not beyond his redemption. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it 
will be exposed. He goes on to describe more of the the great and terrible day of the Lord. A bittersweet day filled with extraordinary eternal blessing and just and righteous judgment against sin. Where every wrong will be paid for, every broken thing repaired. A day which, on days like this morning, day after officiating a funeral for a dear friend, I feel particularly anxious for. But feel good knowing it is our Father's gracious patience for all those that He loves that is staying His hand one more day. In the meantime, Should we hyper-analyze all the activities of culture in order to try to predict his exact return? Please no. Should we sit back in comfortable and self-righteous judgment of all of those who are to face his wrath? If it were not for Jesus reaching out and taking hold of them just like he did each of us? No. Do we build a bunker and hide out? No. Peter ends this letter telling, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Clearly Peter has read Romans. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Did you pick up on what he just said there? Peter earlier described Scripture as breathed out by God. It is God who, people don't write just what they think, God informs them. And he just referred to Paul's letters as Scripture. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, verse 17, take care you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Jesus, burn these words into our souls, into our minds, that we would be Diligent to be found without spot or blemish, knowing that ultimately it is only you that can accomplish that in us. And we would be grateful for your patience toward us, that we would 
take care that we are not carried away by error and lose our stability in the foundation of your gospel and your truth. All that you are, all that you have done, and all that we get to be because of you. And may we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.